0: This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing you the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.
1: It's a new new day. It's a new life.
0: be Healthcare space—it is turning out to, to really kind of spur some interesting combinations uh, when it comes to the healthcare industry, and that includes a $54 billion deal between Cigna and Express Scripts. Where Lisa Brahmans mentioned it uh, just a moment ago—a lifesaver, perhaps, for the pharmacy benefits manager. Some are asking, let's get more on this deal with Jonathan Palmer, senior healthcare analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone in New York, along with Andrea Harris, senior healthcare analyst at Height Capital Markets, joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Jonathan, let's kick it off with you. Surprise, not a surprise. Tell us about this. Does this make seal make sense, a combination between Cigna and Express
2: Scripts? It's really not much of a surprise. You know, the the Express Scripts has been rumored to be bought by a number of companies over the last couple of years. And so really they're the last one uh, I guess at the dance, so to speak. Uh, We've heard rumors that Walgreens was interested in buying them, Uh, Humana's been floated before. So it's kind of not surprising that that this deal uh, bubbled up when it did.
0: What do we get by putting the two together, Jonathan?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting model where they are marrying both the drug benefits and the medical benefits. Most people don't realize that they have two separate kinds of insurance. And Express Scripts handles uh, drug benefits, and Cigna handles their, your medical benefits. And we've seen this move to an integrated model in healthcare, and that's really been espoused by United Healthcare, who a few years back bought their own PBM, a company called Catamaran, to really push this model of integrated uh, delivery uh, forward.
0: Well, and let me bring in Andrea Harris, a senior healthcare analyst over at Hyde Capital Markets. Andrea, safe to say, um, investors have been clamoring for Express Scripts to do something uh, and kind of waiting, as we heard from Jonathan. Is this ultimately a good deal for investors? Is it a good deal for consumers?
3: Thanks, Carol. I think time will tell. Um, for Cigna in particular, I think they're really missing a bigger trend in managing um, healthcare costs for consumers by taking on other parts of the healthcare industry. Uh, Their competitor, uh, Aetna, for example, is merging with CVS. They have a big retail clinic space um, and taking a more direct role in lowering lowering costs through directing enrollees to lower cost care.
0: But time will tell whether or not it makes sense, right, in terms of cost savings and whether or not consumers are getting the best care, best healthcare.
3: In terms of cost savings, Cigna, I think, is really playing catch-up with its peers. Um, Jonathan mentioned that United already runs their own PBM. Optum RX is how they brand it. Uh, Aetna is merging with an existing, the other existing large PBM and CVS.
0: You know, it's interesting, um, Jonathan. I feel like we have often talked about disruption of so many different spaces and industries, you know, going all the way, of course, to back to Uber and the Uberization of how you get a car. But Many have said to me, "You know, what's left is education and healthcare. These are the things that we really do need to disrupt. These combinations, and then having the likes of Amazon and others getting involved in the healthcare space, does this mean kind of we're getting to an evolution truly uh, when it comes to healthcare?"
2: Well, I think there's no doubt about it that there is an evolution and changing landscape. Uh, at, at going on at, pre- at present, you know the the, the threat of Amazon is, is widely viewed across you know every aspect of healthcare, whether it's the pharmacy, the benefits management part, the hospitals, medical supplies, you name it. But really, I think it comes down to we're seeing this integration of, of data. And, and a lot of what these companies are trying to do is marry the disparate data sets they have into, you know, a more holistic approach to provide better health care. You know, whether that ultimately leads to leads to better uh, costs for patients, I think still remains to be seen.
0: And what remains to be seen, Andrea, when it comes to maybe who's left out there, whether it's Anthem, whether it's Humana? I mean, do they ultimately have to do some kind of deal?
3: So Humana announced their own deal, interestingly, uh, in December to acquire uh, Kindred's home health space. Humana is really leveraged in the Medicare Advantage market, and by acquiring home health can lower their overall spend by trying to keep their enrollees out of a high-cost hospital setting and go directly to serving their enrollees in the home. Um, So, you know, in contrast to Cigna, other Insurance companies are trying to get into care delivery more directly. Um, like I said, I think Cigna acquiring a PBM is is kind of catching up to their peers who already have in-house PBMs.
0: Right.
4: And
3: this isn't going far enough to deliver more value for for enrollees.
0: Jonathan, what do you see in terms of other deals that might might occur as a result of this one today, and just you know the kind of the co- consolidation that we've been seeing over the last couple of years once again in healthcare?
2: Well, I think there there's certainly a trend here to you know one domino. Sets off a cascade, and you know if we look back when United Healthcare bought uh, Catamaran, that really started this trend in, in the space. And then the failed deals between uh, Anthem, Aetna, Cigna, and Humana, you know, really left everybody looking around to say, okay, where else can we put our capital to use? And now we've seen CVS Aetna, we've seen this deal today. Uh, you know, I'm not sure. We know which vertical is next, but we're certainly going to see more consolidation uh, across the industry. And I, I think to Andrea's point, you know, there's definitely a, a move to providing more care and, and capturing that piece of healthcare care delivery that, that the managed care companies aren't really doing today, but I think they ultimately aspire to do in the long term.
0: Andrea, do we have to be concerned about antitrust um, problems as a result of this? Just got about 30 seconds left.
3: So I think this deal will put increasing pressure on the CVS-Aetna merger. I think um, as regulators take a look at PBMs and insurers rolling up, they will see, might see this in a new light and that there will be potentially less competition among insurers, particularly because if all managed care insurance companies also have a pharmacy benefit manager, there will be a higher barrier to, to new entrants into that market to serve consumers.
0: All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Jonathan Palmer, Senior Health Care Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, on the phone in New York City. Andrea Harris, Senior Health Analyst at Height Capital Markets. She joined us on the phone from Height uh, Capital Markets in Washington, D.C. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets. Express Scripts, by the way, up about 8.5% as expected as the target here. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets, and this is Bloomberg Radio. Hi! next guest career has been largely spent in the insurance and financial industries her own experience at Penn Mutual she describes as an anti-glass ceiling approach Eileen McDonnell is the CEO at Penn Mutual Life Insurance Company she joins us on the phone from Pennsylvania um, Eileen nice to have you here on International Women's Day nice to have you here on any day to be quite honest anti-glass ceiling approach this caught my attention what what does that mean Uh, What it means to
4: me is that if you see a glass ceiling or a ceiling of any kind, you are limiting yourself. And so throughout my career, I always saw limitless opportunities for myself. And as a company, we're taking advantage of that and actually long have taken advantage of having both men and women in leadership roles.
0: Eileen, I always find what's interesting is, right, companies can set initiatives and say, hey, here's what we're going to do, but unless it's ingrained in the culture, you're not going to make any progress. How do you guys get that thinking ingrained in the culture at Penn Mutual?
4: We actually have a great respect at Penn Mutual for inclusion, which then brings diversity with that. And it's our hope that we can inspire others to aspire for greater representation in their companies as well.
0: And what's interesting, too, is I feel like what's happened over the last year with the Hashtag Me too movement and talking about diversity or lack thereof in Silicon Valley and other uh, industries, the conversation is definitely front and center, and women aren't afraid to come forward and talk about things. What have you seen over the last year that you think has changed?
4: I think it is definitely um, headline news, and there's been great awareness And I think women have long contributed well to um, all aspects of life, whether it be family life, business life, politics. And I think there's a time now where women are coming together using their voice and saying that, um, you know, we want to be part of the dialogue. We want to have an opportunity to share in leadership across all aspects
0: And it's interesting, too. I feel like the financial industry, right, has certainly had, you know, some struggles in terms of, you know, making it much more equal. You guys, though, tell me more specifics about what you are doing at Penn Mutual, you know, supporting uh, women internally and then what you're also doing externally.
4: Sure. Um, you know, let's take a look at the very top of Penn Mutual. Our board has 42% of its members are female. Our C-suite is just under 40%, and our entire workforce is uh, just a little over half of our workforce is women. So. You know, great representation. It's been that way for a long time, and we continue to uh, tap all kinds of diversity of thought, ethnicity, and I believe that has really helped us achieve the last eight years of consecutive growth in our bottom line earnings. That's what we're doing internally, but externally, we have found great ways to to support women. One in particular here in the local Philadelphia area is the Alliance of Women Entrepreneurs, where they have a venture that helps fund Women-owned and women-started businesses to reach the next level, and we are a founding uh, partner there in, in giving capital to help women grow their businesses.
0: Do you find that the pool of women businesses externally that that there's a lot out there that are actually asking for it? I ask this because a few years ago, I talked to Tori Birch about the foundation that she had created to help also women entrepreneurs, and she said one of the tricky things was we actually didn't have people reaching out to us. Um, you know, I'm. Curious Curious, are people coming out, are women-run businesses coming to you guys, uh, coming to the AWE and saying, hey, you know, we need some help? You know, I I would say that
4: uh, whether it be any walk of life, whether it be a career, a corporation, a small business, what I have found is... So few people actually ask for the help that they need, men and women. I credit the success that I've had because men have stepped up when I asked for help and they were willing to help me. I do see that both men and women have difficulty asking for help to achieve the things they want to succeed in life. And I would say start with that. Ask those questions. Ask for help. There are people out there who want to help you.
0: All right. So I love what you're saying. Having said that, you, I'm sure, and others have seen the McKinsey studies that are out there that show still not enough women in boardrooms, not enough women in the executive suite. The numbers are still upsetting and troubling. And if you bring into racial differences, it's even worse. Um, What still needs to be done?
4: You know, it it gets back to something that's very, very simple. This is not a complex matter. This is down to a willingness, a willingness of an organization to be open and inclusive. The talent is out there, be it women or be it ethnic diversity.
0: And so it starts there and it starts at the top. Interesting. Um, And I'm just curious, too, your own experience. um, As you said, you just kind of went after it, and that's a big part of it.
4: It is. I think that, you know, throughout my career, um, I had aspirations to uh, attain great things for Mm -hmm. myself, and I couldn't have done it alone. There have been great mentors along the way who have helped me, and there's been great teams around me to help me. Um, Tapping the right talent and surrounding yourself with great people and being willing to ask for help is definitely uh, ingredients for
0: success. Can't be bashful, that's for sure. (laughs) Eileen McDonald, I appreciate your time today. Chief Executive Officer at Penn Mutual Life Insurance company joining us on the phone from Pennsylvania.
3: I want to talk a
0: little bit about ESG investing because it's about respecting the environment social issues, and governance issues, and really taking them into account when you're investing. And that includes diversity, and that includes women. Our next guest is well-versed in this. Let's bring in Victoria Fernandez, Managing Director of Fixed Income at Crossmark Global Investments. She joins us on the phone from Houston, Texas. Victoria, great to have you here. You and I recently talked as part of a panel in your home state about ESG principles being applied to investing. And we talked a lot about women in the workplace, equality, the Hashtag Me Too movement. Tell us a little bit about ESG and women's issues and how you guys take that into account when it comes to investing strategies.
5: Absolutely. Well, it's great to speak with you again, Carol. And you're right. I mean, with the the Me Too movement and many of the women's um, headlines and topics that have become very popular lately, that's something that um, I think brings more attention to the ESG space than we have had previously. And I know that many people, when they think ESG, they think that there is just a a set description, a set definition of what that is. And that's one of the misnomers that we have. We really need to help educate um, investors and let them realize that there's such a wide variety of items that fall under that ESG. And women's issues is one of those. That can be either through a gender focus at a corporation, through their governance structure that that is, um, you know, that the company is, is made up of with their board. Mm-hmm. It can be through diversity issues. There's all different kinds of issues that can fold into that um, if that's something that people are looking for within their portfolio.
0: What about your investors? Tell me about, I mean, obviously you guys pay, play specifically into the ESG space, and the majority, I think something like 70% of your investments have some kind of ESG screen. Your investors, they want this, right? And it's not just about doing good. It's also about performing good. That's
5: absolutely correct. So we have both an institutional side to our business and then a, a separately managed account side. And almost all of the institutional business, they have their investment policy statements that have some kind of an ESG component built in with that. But we're really starting to see it on the separately managed account side as well. We have individuals coming in saying, you know, Civil liberties, that's important to me, and human rights. Bribery and fraud, that's important to me. You know, climate change is important to me. And so what we have done is we have set up a variety of different um, ESG components that they can look at. We have about 25 different components falling within the different categories. You know, who doesn't love a buffet, right? Everyone (laughs) likes a, a choice. And so this really is an opportunity for an investor to come in and say, okay, these are my um, risk parameters, right? These are my return objectives that I want for my portfolio. But these items are really important to me as well. So how can I make those two things come together? And that's what we've really been working on with our clients, helping them realize that we have these strong fundamental strategies that they can use for their investments, but then we can take those personal values that they have and put those along with the strategies and they're not really giving up on performance you know there's that whole idea that you have to give something up in order to have ESG and it's really just not true when you look at a longer time horizon performance is comparable with benchmarks with the indices and even outperforms many times and I'm not gonna say there's not volatility right quarter to quarter right obviously you can have volatility depending on what you know you're putting the overlay on your on your portfolio but long term your performance not giving up anything in order to make these personal values part of your investment thesis.
0: What's really interesting, too, is um, what you say is that it's not just, I mean, in terms of the ESG screening, it's no longer, too, about being exclusionary screening. It's rather kind of a proactive approach, which is kind of what you were just talking about.
5: It really is, and you know, there's there's different sides to it, right? So you can have that exclusionary if that's if it's just that you don't want to have tobacco stocks in your portfolio, then that's great. We can handle that. Um, but if you're looking for something that is more proactive, you know, I want to look at companies that have a positive impact on a specific sector. Then that's something that you're really starting to see more of within the space. That's something that we're growing um, here at Crossmark as well. So there's really kind of um, an option as to how you want to approach ESG within your portfolio. Uh,
0: you know, let me ask you too, you, you mentioned it can be volatile, right? And I remember yeah. we, in this panel that you and I did about a week ago, it also said that a company, for instance, you could be interested in investing in media companies and it could mm-hmm. lead you to a name like Fox and you're investing and then all of a sudden turmoil comes out mm-hmm. and concerns and allegations of sexual harassment and then it's mm-hmm. no longer something you want to be invested in. Correct.
5: And, you know, we have to on our end as a a money manager and serving our clients, we have to be aware of all of these changes that are going on and how that's affecting the governance of a company or how that's affecting, you know, climate change if it's a company that's Mm -hmm. looking at that. But like for the Fox example, when a lot of that came out, I mean, Fox they did end up falling into a screen then that we were going to have to remove them from a portfolio. That doesn't mean you go in that day and sell something out. Um, you have to be prudent as to how you manage the investments. But then that means going forward, you're not going to put that in the portfolio. You need to find a way to work out um, of the names that are no longer considered you know, part of that, either that proactive component that you're looking at or the exclusionary screen. So it's an ongoing effort on a daily basis to make sure that we're matching those principles and that the right firms are are part of those screens.
0: What about, you know, I think about what's going on out of Washington. We're expected to hear from the president regarding trade and tariffs and pushback. Um, Things like that impact potentially could be factors uh, that, that are brought into your strategies? You know,
5: they could be, and
0: not necessarily from an ESG component. You know, the
5: the tariff issue probably wouldn't fit in there. Um, Obviously, it's causing volatility, uh, you know, in the marketplace. And so, you know, you have to look and see – how are you investing? I mean, we're not day traders, right? We're more long-term investors. So we have to say, let's take a step back. Let's forget the headlines right now. Let's look at the fundamentals of what's going on in the market and how do we want to position ourselves based on those fundamentals. Now, that doesn't mean in, you know, 30 minutes or so, we don't get something that changes that outlook if we have a a strong policy that then is going to affect the long-term outlook. But for right now, we're just basing more on, you know, what's the yield curve going to do? What does inflation look like? Like jobs number, obviously, tomorrow morning is extremely important. But there are items that can affect the screens. I mean, just like, you know, we've had a lot of clients call in now and, and start wanting to look at firearms mm. as something that they don't want to hold in their portfolio because of headlines um, and the tragedy that we saw in Florida. So news headlines can go either way. Sometimes they're taken into consideration. Sometimes we don't consider them something that really can affect the investments and look more at fundamentals.
0: Going to leave it there. Thank you so much. Great to talk with you again. Victoria Fernandez, she's Managing Director of Fixed Income at Crossmark Global Investments. Joining us on the phone from Houston, Texas, the latest on ESG Investing. Well, last spring, Sian Bylock was named the eighth president of Barnard College, a place near and dear to me as an alum of Barnard. She's a cognitive scientist by training, studying how people do under pressure and what psychological tools help them perform at their best. She's also focused on how women and girls perform in math and science. President Bylock, thank you so much for joining us. Really great to have you here.
1: Great
0: to be here. Hey, you know, International Women's Day, I love that the world is drawing attention to women today. But having said that, Barnard has been doing that for over a century. And even so, there are still strides to be made. You know, why do you see that this is still kind of difficult? We don't have enough women in board positions. We don't have enough women in senior leadership positions or senior executive positions.
1: Yeah, there's many reasons, and they start from very young, um, before students even get up to high levels and when they could go off into the world. But I think one of the the biggest issues that we haven't really emphasized enough is that when we have diversity in these senior leadership positions women and people of color we actually make better decisions there's lots of research showing that having a diverse team starting at the very top expands the talent pool expands knowledge and leads to a better workforce. And so pushing that out there and getting people to understand that looking for that diversity will lead to a better product or better performance is imperative.
0: What about math and science in particular, STEM? My dad was an engineer. I have a sister who's an electrical engineer. I have a niece who's in med school. So I do see it in my family, but I still don't see it necessarily enough in in the world where, you know, young girls are interested in science, but then they kind of lose their way as they get older. You know, you've looked at this and focused on that. What What do you see uh, in the world why women aren't uh, kind of making more inroads in STEM specifically, and what more can we do?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, it actually starts very early. Young girls, when they get to kindergarten, to first grade, they are already picking up on stereotypes, false stereotypes, that boys are smarter, um, that they shouldn't be as interested in math and science. And some of that comes from the people around them. When parents talk about not being good at math or not being a math person, when moms talk about it, their girls can pick up on it. And we even know that when teachers, um, who are mostly at a young age, Uh, in elementary school, there are female teachers, when they're really anxious about their own math ability, their girls learn less math and are more anxious across the school year.
0: Well, you talk about anxious anxiety, and I know you have specifically, I find this fascinating, that you have studied and written about the impact of stress on individuals. What are the differences, if any, in how men and women deal with stress or how that stress impacts their success in the workplace?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question, but I think it's the actually the wrong question to ask. We all differ in terms of how we deal with performance anxiety, and it's less about gender, I would mm-hmm. argue, and more about creating environments that allow people to succeed. So, for example, at Barnard, we have a large percentage of our faculty who are women who are in leadership roles, and we know that when young women see other people in those leadership roles, when we see people who are like us, it sends signals that we should be able to to do
0: it too you know it's interesting too what you said about especially for young girls in science it starts really early and you think about at home and what parents might say so having said that by the time you get a woman you know they've been on this earth for many years and there's certain stereotypes already in there so it's a tougher task sometimes for what has to be done at colleges and universities to maybe change the way women think about what they can do
1: yeah, and that's something that I think is a big component of what colleges and universities should be doing for everyone is changing how they think or giving students the tools to succeed wherever they want to succeed, and knowing that their notions about what they're good at or what their interests might be could change when they're exposed to different ways of thinking, uh, different people who've had various backgrounds in succeeding. and when they see, for example, Young women see other women having succeeded in these roles.
0: You know, it's interesting. Later on, I'm going to talk with Anne-Marie Slaughter, who about five years ago and around the same time that, like, Sheryl Sandberg wrote her book, Lean In, she wrote a story about why women can't have it all. And it was pretty controversial at that time. Um, When you look at the environment, five years since Sheryl Sandberg, she gave that great speech at Barnard College at the same time that really kind of helped spark that Lean In movement. What's changed? What's gotten better? What hasn't? We have about a minute left here.
1: Well, I think, you know, some of what we're noticing today and what's really um, high profile in the news is galvanizing young women to realize that things are maybe not as good as they want them to be in terms of their ability to speak up and push forward. And there's work to do. And at Barnard, our goal is to help our students really um, get the tools they need to succeed. And that involves being at the stellar place where they're um, supported and they have all the resources of Barnard and Columbia right there. And it's an exciting time.
0: I'm certainly um, subjective, but I'm also objective because it certainly made a difference in my life. Um, president uh, Bylock, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time on this Thursday. President uh, Sion Bylock, president of Barnard College, joining us on the phone in New York City.
6: But I say that the women of today smarter than the man in every way. That's right, the woman
1: is. Women
0: in STEM. Yeah, they're smarter. We've heard, though, the discouraging numbers, the inequalities, and yet, according to our next guest, that more women are actually studying engineering so much for the myth that kind of has been out there that there aren't women in the pipeline, the STEM pipeline, to pull upon. Sarah McBride is venture capital reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us uh, on the phone from San Francisco. Good story, smart story today. Tell us, Sarah, what's going on here. Yeah.
6: Well, um, there are these really alarming statistics about women studying computer science and how the numbers are way down from the 1980s. Just about a fifth of computer science degrees go to women at the undergraduate level, and that's down from over a third in the early 1980s. So colleges have been wringing their hands. How can they get more women to study programming? And um, it looks like a few tops schools have some encouraging numbers where, especially over the last five years, they've made huge gains. There are more students studying programming overall. And at some of these schools, it's well over a third of their computer science students who are women. So not quite under parity, but far better than it was.
0: And it's interesting, too, and I think this has come to light thanks to Emily Chang, her new book that's out. And she talks about, goes back to the history, right, that women were the initial computer programmers, you know, out there and then got kind of squeezed out for a couple of different reasons. So, you know, it's kind of nice to see that maybe the numbers are actually getting a little bit better, or at least some specific programs were starting to see that.
6: Right. So the academics I spoke to said that often at the college level, these trends start at a few top schools that can afford to try different recruiting tactics, different retention tactics. And then when other schools see what works, they can implement some of those uh, changes. And the trends at the top schools tend to trickle down. So it is an encouraging sign that schools like Stanford now have a third of women uh, computer science students. Well, that's what I love
0: in your story. You talk about some of the specific numbers. You just mentioned Stanford. At MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, 42% of computer science majors are now women. That's up from 34% five years ago. You say the the ratio is similar at Carnegie Mellon uh, in Pittsburgh, um, where female representation was as low as 7% back in the 1990s. How How specifically, though, are these folks were there, seeing successful gains in women studying STEM programs, how are they doing it? Well, I
6: spoke to a very interesting professor at uh, Carnegie Mellon University, Professor Bloom, who's been at the school since the 1990s. And she said she came in at a time when Carnegie Mellon was realizing this is terrible. We really need to do something about this. And she said, The first step they made at Carnegie Mellon was simply going out and telling their network of high school teachers, please tell your girl students that we are really interested in having them at Carnegie Mellon. We really like having women in our computer science program. It's a great place for women. They made no other changes, nothing in the curriculum, no mentorship program. All they did was say we welcome women. And just putting out a welcome mat was enough to start significantly boosting the numbers at Carnegie Mellon. That's a big
0: deal, right? This idea yeah. of of a university or what have you. And this is true for the workplace that says, especially in some areas that might have traditionally been seen as kind of a place where men go to work, whether it's a company or whether it's an industry, that, you know, a lot of women, they're out there, you're saying the pipelines out there, they just haven't felt
6: welcomed. And so they're not right to apply. Right. I think that's exactly right. And that's not just at college, but as you said, in the workplace, too. So uh, half the battle is making women feel welcome. And I do think that that's the thing many technology companies have overlooked. It's very easy to blame the Python problem, oh, we don't have enough of a supply, and not look at, are you truly welcoming gender or diversity of all kinds into your organization. When these women arrive at your workplace, what are you doing to make them feel included and really part of the team? Sarah? So that's a big part.
0: Sarah, we're talking with Sarah McBride, venture capital reporter here at Bloomberg News on the phone from San Francisco. Earlier I spoke with um, the president of uh, Barnard College, and we talked specifically about the importance of women in STEM. And she made the point, and we've heard this a lot, right, uh, Sarah, in that it's often – You do find girls that are interested in science, but they lose that interest uh, along the way, whether it's parents, whether it's teachers, whether it's society that kind of says, well, no, that's not for you. (laughs) You're a girl kind of thing, because there is some of that still out there. Um, We need to see all of this starting earlier and earlier.
6: Yeah. I mean, I spoke to one young woman from my article, Christine Betts. She is now majoring at, in computer science at the University of Washington in Seattle. And she said that all through high school, nobody ever suggested computer science as a field of study or a career to her. Looking back, she realizes she exhibited all the classic signs of somebody who would take to it. She said she always liked logic problems, Sudoku, she even liked Mm -hmm. Microsoft Excel. And now she sees like, oh yeah, of course it makes perfect sense that I'm interested in programming. But through her whole high school career, nobody ever suggested it. It was only once she left college and was in a job after college before she started, I'm sorry, after high school, Mm -hmm. before she started college, that somebody said, hey, have you ever thought about programming? And it was just that random question that sent her on that path.
0: Well, we're glad she uh, definitely went on that path. Sarah, thank you so much. Sarah McBride, interesting story. She also talked about the uh, number of high school students who took advanced placement tests in computer science in terms of girls. That, too, has gone up in the past 10 years. Sarah McBride, venture capital reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone from San Francisco. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You
2: can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern,
0: only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.